So Corwin and Ganelon are allowed into the tent, and Benedict and Corwin look at each other. It's a warm greeting. They're both smiling. Benedict says, Corwin, and still alive. And Corwin says, Benedict, and breathing yet. It's been devilish long. End quote. And they sit down, and they bring some wine. Corwin introduces Ganelon, and the three of them drink, and... You know, they start to tell their stories. And of course, Corwin's the younger brother, so he needs to go first. And what follows is just fantastic storytelling. And it's done in two main parts. The first section is Corwin's retelling of some kind of older Amber history. Right? It's the circumstances of his original fight with Eric, his banishment. We learn a little bit more about you know, the relationship between Corwin and Eric. We learn more about, like, the whole vibe surrounding Oberon and the succession and kind of the old days. And then in the second part, we get Corwin's retelling of the events of essentially Nine Princes in Amber. He sort of wants to catch Benedict up on all the stuff that's been going on recently, kind of recent history, and we'll get more on that in a minute. Corwin says, quote, There are many beginnings it is difficult. I suppose I should go all the way back and take it from there. End quote. And then he starts in with this kind of formal history. He says, quote, It was several years after the defeat of the Moonriders out of Ganesh and your departure that Eric and I had a major falling out. Yes, it was a quarrel over the succession. Dad had been making abdication noises again, and he still refused to name a successor. Naturally, the old arguments were resumed as to who was more legitimate. Of course, you and Eric are both my elders, but while Fiella, mother to Eric and myself, was his wife after the death of Simnia, they, end quote, and then Benedict interrupts him, and he's like, enough, and he slams the table, and the table cracks because he hits it so hard, and Corwin and Ganelon are probably like, oh shit, and basically Benedict's like, I don't want to hear that, and he's kind of pissed off at Corwin's politics, you know, the way he's talking about the past and you know, who's the true heir to the throne and all that stuff. And, and, you know, he's like, that's the reason I left Amber. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. You know, go on with your story, but don't add all the footnotes. And so Corwin's a little bit embarrassed by that and, you know, goes on with his story. But, you know, as the reader, we're getting some pretty interesting stuff in here, right? We're learning for the first time, I believe, the name of the mother of Benedict. It's actually typed Klimnia, C-L-Y-M-N-E-A, in my edition. That's going to be corrected to Simnia, getting rid of the L, in future mentions, of which there are many, and Zelazny confirms that later on, and I think that's just a typo. But we're learning about Simnia, who's the mother of Benedict, who we know is the eldest, and confirming that Fiella is the mother to both Eric and Corwin. We can timeline, by the way, this attack of the Moon Riders out of Ganesh. He says it's several years after that that he and Eric fight. Going by the timeline and our calculations of the time differential between Amber and Earth, we can put Corwin's exile at about 151 years before the start of Nine Princes. And that would get him to the 1592 date that I think we can 
confidently place as his exile to Shadow Earth, 1592, the year of the plague in London. That's 151 years before the start of Nine Princes, Amber Time. And so we can put this attack by the Moonriders out of Ganesh at about 160 years ago, Amber Time. And it's important because, you know, Corwin places his fight with Eric several years after this attack by the Moonriders out of Ganesh, and also several years after Benedict's departure. And it's fascinating because up until now, there's been a lot of statements about how Benedict left 22 years before the start of Nine Princes. He's been gone 20 years, and that kind of checks out in a couple different places. But this reference to Benedict's departure from Amber goes back, you know, 150 some odd years ago. So I guess Benedict left Amber a long time ago, came back, then left Amber again 22 years ago, or 22 years before the start of Nine Princes. And so clearly Benedict has a reputation for having checked out of Amber a long time ago, even though like the last time he was officially seen in Amber was 22 years before the start of Nine Princes. Anyway, from there, Corwin goes on to tell the story of how he and Eric fought. Corwin lost, and then he was exiled to this place called Shadow Earth, in a place called London, when there was plague. And you know, he talks a little bit about that. That's kind of interesting. He says, quote, I dwelled on that shadow world for centuries, seeking some clue as to my identity. I traveled all over it, often as part of some military campaign. I attended their universities. I spoke with some of their wisest men. I consulted famous physicians, but nowhere could I find the key to my past. It was obvious to me that I was not like other men, and I took great pains to conceal this fact. I was furious because I could have anything I wanted except what I wanted most, my own identity, my memories. End quote. And that's kind of a cool perspective that we haven't had yet of Corwin and his own time on Shadow Earth. You know, he'll talk later about having spent time with Sigmund Freud, and I think that's kind of given a nod here. Obviously, all the military campaigns, whether it's, you know, Napoleon or General Lee or MacArthur, like that's been brought up a bunch of times. So there are some interesting references there. And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, Flora had been a resident on Shadow Earth as well and put there by Eric to keep tabs on Corwin. And then we get Corwin sort of guessing as to what happened in Amber after he was banished. He says, quote, To return to conjecture, Eric must have stayed his hand at the last moment, desiring my death but not wanting it traceable to him, so he transported me through shadow to a place of sudden, almost certain death, doubtless to return and say that we had argued and I'd ridden off in a huff, muttering something about going away again. We'd been hunting in the forest of Arden that day, just the two of us together, end quote. And Benedict's like, that's kind of weird. You hated each other. Why are you, like, going hunting together? And Corwin's like, "Mm, yeah, we probably relished the idea of it because they were literally ready to kill each other. And Benedict confirms that that's, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Eric came back, and that's what he said. And then Corwin goes on to say, quote, Then, presumably, Dad abdicated and disappeared without the question of the succession having been settled, end quote. And Benedict interjects there and is like, quote, the hell he did. There was no abdication. He just vanished. One morning he was simply not in his chambers. His bed had not even been slept in. There were no messages. He'd been seen entering the suite the evening before, but no one saw him depart. 
This was not considered strange for a long while. At first, it was simply thought he went sojourning in shadow once again, perhaps to seek another bride. It was a long while before anyone dared suspect foul play or choose to construe this as a novel form of abdication, end quote. And so this is new information for Corwin. He's kind of embarrassed. Corwin asks Benedict when the last time he was back, and Benedict again confirms a little over 20 years ago. And he says, quote, but I keep in touch, end quote. And this is a big deal because Corwin's learning that someone has been keeping in touch with Benedict and keeping it a secret. And this is making him nervous. Now, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, shit, what does Benedict know? Whose side is he on? And he ultimately decides, he kind of goes through all the brothers and sisters and ultimately concludes that it must be Gerard that he's keeping in touch with, and he's not wrong on that front. And then ultimately, Corwin is sort of wrestling with this information about Oberon having just vanished as opposed to abdicated. Corwin's like, I guess we all acted prematurely, and Benedict says, quote, not everyone. And we're getting, you know, Benedict the grown-up here. Basically, the vibe of this whole scene is that this is very much the older brother, almost a father figure. He's the adult. He's the responsible one. Everyone else is acting like babies. And it's a really important framing. You know, you've got the petty squabbles, Eric, Blaze, Corwin, Julian, and now you've got Benedict, who's sort of above it all, and helping bring perspective. Then we get into basically part two of this sequence, which is Corwin recapping what's happened to him. And he says, quote, when Eric decided that the throne had been vacant long enough and the time had come to make his move, he must also have decided that my amnesia was not sufficient and it would be better to see my claim quitted entirely. At this time, he arranged for me to have an accident on that shadow earth, an accident that should have proven fatal, but didn't, end quote. And Benedict responds to that by saying, quote, how do you know this? How much of it is guesswork? End quote. And I think this is really the beginning of Eric shaping up to be kind of a better guy, you know, from the beginning. Corwin paints Eric to just be a crazy, mad prince, awful person. Corwin's the hero that's going to come challenge his hated brother. And it's almost cartoonish the way that that's painted, right? And Deirdre goes along with it. You know, Eric's a mad prince. He's kept her captive for no apparent reason. Would have killed her. Wants to kill everybody. You know, it goes to Rebma, Queen Moira there, hates Eric also. Everyone just hates Eric. He's this one-dimensional antagonist. And then I think the seeds started to get planted. And I think it starts right here, you know, not so much in Nine Princes. But here we sort of have this new character, Benedict, who's providing a different perspective. And, and he doesn't go much into it right now. But of course we're going to find out Eric didn't shoot out his tires. He didn't try to have him killed. Eric didn't even want to do the blinding. That was Julian's idea. And even Benedict earlier in this conversation makes the point that their situations could have been reversed. And Corwin has to acknowledge that on that day when they went hunting, he would have easily killed Eric, except Eric just got the best of him. And what does Benedict know? Does Benedict know at this point that Eric didn't have the tire shot out, that it was probably Brand, or at least that it probably wasn't Eric? So, so that whole sense of, you know, Corwin having the story wrong, you know, Eric being probably a better guy than Corwin's made him out to be, Benedict's not necessarily on Eric's side, he's not on Corwin's side either, he's trying to kind of like be the big brother here. So it all starts right here, which is kind of cool. And Corwin says that the car accident is what triggered his memories coming back, that of course will end up being wrong, 
and, and Bran will point that out in a future book. And Corwin mentions that he's at Flora's house and Random shows up and he's being chased by something. And Benedict says, what? What, what was he running from? And Corwin says, quote, from some strange creatures out of shadow. I never found out, end quote. And again, Corwin's feeling a little embarrassed because he's like, yeah, that is actually a good question. So Lazny's reminding us here that we don't really know why Random was being chased by these strange shadow creatures. Corwin's going to question Random about this at the top of Sign of the Unicorn. But in the meantime, Zelazny's just kind of keeping the image of those creatures in that battle at Flora's house. He's kind of keeping that top of mind for us. And it will be important later. And Corwin tells the story of, you know, all of them going to Rebma together with Deirdre and Random. Benedict says, quote, at this point, Random must have been a very unhappy man, end quote. And that checks out that Benedict would be kind of attuned to that. We're going to learn later that it was Benedict who took in Random's son, Martin, who had been the product of Random's affair with the daughter of Moira, who ended up killing herself, and that whole legend of why Random is so hated in Rebma. Well, it's Martin, the boy, and Benedict ended up being sort of a father figure to him. So yeah, Benedict would know all about that story and be very attuned to that. And then Corwin goes on to tell the story of like walking the pattern and going to Amber, fighting with Eric falling in with Blaze. Benedict shows some empathy when Corwin is talking about getting captured and having his eyes burnt from his head. Benedict's very curious about the regeneration of the eyeballs because he's sitting there with a stump of a right arm and wondering if his arm's going to grow back. And then he asks Corwin how he managed his escape, and Corwin doesn't want to tell him, of course. He says, quote, I did not want to tell him about Dworkin, I had wanted to save Dworkin as something of an ace in the hole. None of us understood the man's full power, and he was obviously mad, but he could be manipulated, end quote. And we're sort of getting a deeper description of Dworkin here, and he goes on for a long paragraph. And I think Zelazny's purpose here is really to let us know that, look, there's a lot more to the metaphysics of Amber and the universe than even Corwin knows, and he's setting the stage for this kind of bigger struggle between the great powers of Amber and Chaos. And again, I think Guns of Avalon is in many ways the book that launches that much bigger world, that much bigger conflict. You know, by the end of Guns of Avalon, we'll be cross-fading from the story of Eric versus Corwin into the story of Amber versus Chaos. And ultimately, this carries us through even the Merlin Chronicles. And he's really setting that up right now. And Dworkin, who had initially been painted as kind of this caricature of a wizard, purple robes, you know, pointy hat, turning people into frogs, into what will become the creator of Amber himself, a chaos lord, and, you know, all that other stuff. So he's he's making that transition. He does lay the groundwork here, by the way, about Brand. He says, quote, Brand was the only one who seemed to have had any interest in the subject. And Fiona, I'd almost forgotten, sometimes Fiona would listen End quote. And he's talking about Dworkin and the pattern and the tarot and all that stuff and how everyone else in the family just sort of ignored all that. But he's laying the groundwork here. And this is really the first time, right? I've said all along, he keeps saying, I wonder where Brand is. I wonder where Brand is. Does anyone know where Brand is? And no one knows. And here, finally, he says, yeah, actually, now that I think of it, Brand used to pay attention to Dworkin. And so that's really cool groundwork. And he's also lumping Fiona into that. And then Corwin goes on, and by the way, this is just like a big, long paragraph of his musings. 
And he's thinking more about his brothers and sisters and his family. And he says, quote, actually, I'm quite surprised the family is not much larger. The 13 of us, plus two brothers and a sisters who I knew were now dead, represent close to 1,500 years of parental production, end quote. And there's a couple things in here. First of all, the 1,500 years of parental production is super relevant for the timeline. It allows us to date essentially the birth of Benedict, and we're going to learn later that Benedict spent several millennia in shadow, trying out different military tactics, and we'll need to assume, based upon that, that he was choosing shadows where time runs slower than it does in Amber, and of course that makes sense, and that's what he would do. So 1,500 years, and by the way, that also jives with the timeline we established when Lorraine talked about how her grandfather was killed by the shadow of Corwin, Lord Corwin. And doing the math there, that places Corwin's creation of Avalon at about 1,500 years ago as well. And so give or take, you know, Benedict had to be born and, you know, some other stuff went down and then Corwin was eventually born. It puts it in the ballpark that I think we can safely assume that Corwin left for Avalon as a very young man, right after taking the pattern. And in fact, he backs that up elsewhere, where he talks about once they came of age and walked the pattern, they went to find their own shadows like he did with Avalon. We're also getting here a more restrained accounting of all the princes and princesses than we got from Corwin when he was walking the pattern in Nine Princes in Amber. At that time, he'd said, quote, 15 brothers and eight sisters. But here he's implying there's only 11 brothers, and two of them are dead. And that obviously has to be Osric and Findo, who he's going to mention later. It's just the two dead brothers and the 13 alive ones. That leaves no room for Delwyn, who would not have been a secret to Corwin. Delwyn was not like a secret birth. Sand and Delwyn, they lived in Amber for a while and then left. So he's getting that wrong. And it leaves room only for one dead sister. And we'll assume that's Sand. Even though in Nine Princes, he said that there were two, possibly four, dead sisters. So he's sort of shrinking the number here. I don't know quite why that is and not quite sure what to make of it. Corwin also says, quote, not a tremendous batting average for so lusty a liege, end quote. And he's making the point that over 1,500 years, Oberon only had a handful of kids and that he's not particularly fertile. But that's going to be contradicted in the Merlin Chronicles, by the way. When Merlin has a conversation with the pattern ghost of Oberon, Oberon talks about having 47 illegitimate children. He sort of casts as this king who really gets around. Oberon's seemingly bragging about his ability to have all these children. He's visiting different time streams. And that's like in direct contradiction to Corwin's view of it, which is he really didn't have that many kids. And then he talks a little bit more about Oberon, and he says, quote, I had never encountered anyone whose memory stretched back to a time when there had been no Oberon, end quote. And he goes on, and we get this first really in-depth description of Oberon. We've had some descriptions of his physical appearance, but he talks a lot more about what kind of a person he is. And I love that he says, I, I've never met anyone who didn't know of a time before Oberon, and he's kind of painting that picture in the reader's head. He's sort of setting the stage for Dworkin ultimately being the grandfather, that there was sort of an origin story for Amber. The history just doesn't go back that far. That makes us want to know more about it. 
and he goes on and on about his dad, and he finally says, quote, if a power out of dad's dark past, which none of us really understood, could serve to secure it, and if Dworkin did represent such a power, then he must remain hidden until he could be employed on my behalf. Even, I asked myself, if the power he represented was the power to destroy Amber itself, and with it to shatter the shadow worlds and capsize all of existence as I understood it, especially then, I answered myself, for who else could be trusted with such power? We are indeed a very pragmatic family, end quote. And he's talking about the fact that Dworkin had told him that he'd thought of a way to destroy Amber, and that's why Oberon imprisoned him. He wants to keep all of this information for himself. He's starting to put it together. Of course, he's got it wrong. It's really Brand, Fiona Blaze, Brand in particular, who found a way to reach out to the Chaos Lords to propose a scheme a conspiracy. I want to be king in Amber, but I got to get Oberon out of the way. How do we do it? Chaos teaches him how to damage the pattern. They give him that information. He stabs Martin over the pattern. Dworkin goes mad. They're able to capture Oberon, get him out of the way, and then Brand, Blazing Funeral will make a play for the throne. That's like the scheme. And Brand ultimately just goes too far and just starts getting involved with all these dark powers. And ultimately it's Brand who decides he's going to erase the pattern, destroy it altogether, and, and write his own. And so Corwin's kind of on the right track with all of that, but he's, of course, missing the big piece, which is Brand. And later in the conversation, Benedict says, quote, We looked for you, Corwin. Did you know that? Brand searched for you in many shadows, as did Gerard. You guessed correctly as to what Eric said after your disappearance that day. We were inclined to look further than his word, however— we tried your trump repeatedly, but there was no response. It must be that the brain damage can block it. That's interesting. Your failure to respond to the trump led us to believe that you had died. Then Julian, Kane, and Random joined the search, end quote. And that's pretty cool. Like, Corwin isn't entirely wrong about Eric. At least not the old Eric. And it's fascinating to imagine them all searching for Corwin, all for different reasons. The timing's a little strange. Benedict would search for Corwin some 150 years ago, Amber time, and then settle down in Avalon. Has he been here that whole time? I mean, Benedict goes on to say, quote, I sought for you in the vicinity of Avalon, and I found this place and was taken by it, end quote. And that's actually going to square later when we get into the timeline of Benedict and Lintra. It's helpful to the timeline that includes Dara and her involvement in the conspiracy with Brand. It's helpful if he's been here that long. But it's kind of amazing, 150 years ago, that Benedict settled in Avalon. Anyway, they talk into the night, and they sort of start to wrap up, and Benedict makes the point, quote, Children are not named Corwin in this place, nor am I brother to any Corwin here, end quote. And so Corwin's going to have to keep up his fake identity, Sir Cory. And it's important because... This is corroborating, again, that Corwin really was a tyrant. And I'll just pause here to say, again, Corwin's not a good guy. I mean, he must have been an awful young prince in Amber, wanted to kill Eric. Eric wanted to kill him. What a nightmare for Oberon. He's mean to pretty much everybody. And then when he loses his memory and goes to Shadow Earth, he's still at the core, Corwin, and he's throwing in with Nazis with the confederacy uh, he's with the aristocracy and in france during the revolution he's just sort of always on the wrong side of history occasionally fighting with the good guys he's a mercenary 
but a mercenary that would be happy to go fight for the Nazis, the Confederacy. It, it, it you know, and and he's just kind of a jerk. And we're learning that when he went to Avalon, he was a tyrant. And how long was he a tyrant? For hundreds of years? There's really not much to like about this guy's past. And we only like him because when he wakes up in that hospital, he's shrewd, he's surly and kind of funny, he's strong, he's very competent, and he wants what he wants, and we're kind of rooting for him. But you know, as the novels unfold, we learn a lot of pretty awful stuff about this guy the anti-hero. And then as they wrap up, you know, Benedict makes the point, don't use Avalon as a staging ground for your invasion of Amber. You know, he says, quote, Amber is in bad enough shape without another power grab, end quote. And the dynamic is shifting. You know, it's not just about Corwin versus Eric at this point. Amber's in trouble. And if you go after Eric, you're really going after Amber. And so it's kind of Corwin versus Amber, not Corwin versus Eric. And I think this is a really interesting moment for the reader where you're like, okay, it's not going to be that simple. It's not just a revenge story. There's a very fascinating conflict here. People might be willing to get behind Corwin because of what happened to him four years in the dungeon. He was blinded. Sure, fine, payback. But now that Amber's in trouble, if you attack, you're actually putting Amber at risk, Corwin, by going for the throne. And so now that's complicated. It's not a two-sided fight anymore. Eric over here, Corwin over here, Benedict over there. It's sort of a three-pointed triangle. And Corwin, you know, still makes the point, quote, Eric is a usurper, end quote, pushing back a little bit on Benedict. But then Benedict's like, quote, I choose to look upon him as regent only. At this time, any of us who claims the throne is guilty of usurpation, end quote. Corwin asks him if he thinks Oberon's still alive, and, and Benedict says yes. Quote, alive and distressed. He made several attempts to communicate, end quote. And that's a little bit embarrassing for Corwin because he also has had the same experience. And so it's just, you know, kind of fascinating. Corwin really wants the throne, but like it's obvious that Oberon's alive. It's obvious that Benedict's right. It isn't about taking the throne. It's about finding Oberon. Like, what's wrong? Like, why, why... Why did he disappear? You know, Amber's being attacked by dark creatures. Like, it's there's bad stuff going on here, Corwin. Wake up. Grow up. It's like an incredible divulging of information. How many people know Oberon's alive? All of them? I mean, if you think about it, these kids are awful. Blaze, Eric, Corwin. Like they, they all know full well Oberon's going to be coming back one day, and they're still, you know, fighting for the throne, trying to kill each other while Amber's being attacked by the Courts of Chaos. And there's some cool back and forth here between these two brothers who really want to trust each other, but they know they can't. And Corwin has to choose his words very carefully. He says, quote, I have no army, nor did I come here to recruit one, end quote. And then Benedict says, quote, then know that you are most welcome, end quote. And... You know, in fact, he is using Avalon as a means to stage his attack on Amber, but he's not technically recruiting an army here in Avalon, so he kind of squeaks through there. Benedict says he's going to spend another week in the field, mopping up the end of the battle. You know, they've been victorious, by the way. They defeated Lintra. He killed her, all the Hellmaids. He lost his right arm in the final battle, but they're victorious. 
but he needs another week or so, and he sends Ganelon into town to stay at one of his houses and says, I'll join you there in a week. And they say goodnight, and then Corwin does this really cool thing you know, where he's leaving the tent, and he pushes the flap aside, and he reaches up high and kind of squeezes it as he's leaving so that when it closes, there's sort of a gap left there, and, and he and Ganelon go to their bedrolls, and they kind of position them so that Corwin can still see into the tent. And through this gap that he's created, he's able to see that Benedict is having a conversation with someone and he's using the trumps. So, you know, the distrust is there. Who's he talking to? He's probably talking to Gerard, reporting everything that's just happened. And Corwin's still, like, super paranoid and suspicious. He's got a sword close by. He says, quote, Tomorrow, I told myself, if I wake up here tomorrow, everything will be all right. End quote. And that's the end of chapter four of the Guns of Avalon. We've got Corwin, Ganelon, we've got Benedict in the picture now. The stakes are going up. Corwin's got his plan. Get the pink powder, which is going to ignite in amber. Go get the guns on Shadow Earth that are going to be custom made. Recruit my army. Attack Amber with automatic rifles. Unseat Eric. Take the throne. But now you've got Benedict saying, don't do it. Amber's in trouble. You're starting to get a sense that Eric's maybe not entirely the bad guy. That the events that Corwin recalls might not all be exactly right. That Oberon is still alive. And that there's dark forces at work here. And remember, Dworkin thought of a way to destroy Amber. So all this is swirling around as the story is just getting much more intricate, much more complicated. There's new players on the scene And it's just incredibly awesome. 